Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Today we're talking about one of the most bizarre mammals on the planet. Seemingly part bear, part bird, part monkey, and part lizard, they have hands like humans and tails like a paddle. They can stay underwater for 15 minutes troll the surface like alligators, and work together to build structures big enough to be seen by satellites. Of course, I'm referring to beavers, which you can find in most of North America, but not on Cape Cod. Not yet, anyway, because beavers are making a comeback. Once trapped to extinction and driven from their habitats as Europeans restructured the landscape for agriculture and industry, they're being reintroduced as governments and scientists have finally realized what indigenous peoples always knew, that the work of beavers provides habitats for many species, mitigates flooding, purifies water, and restores damaged environments. My guest today is Leela Phillip, an award-winning author and teacher in the Environmental Studies Program at the College of the Holy Cross, where she's also a professor in the English department. She's also a self-trained naturalist who became obsessed with beavers. Today we're talking about her charming new book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. Leela Phillip, thank you for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was a really great introduction, and I chuckled with your description of the beavers. <laughs> well, it all comes from your wonderful book. So let's start here. As I understand it, you didn't train as an ecological scientist or even a wildlife biologist. So how did you get obsessed with beavers, number one? And number two, how did you get the confidence to write a book of sort of natural history of the beaver? Yes, well, oh, that's a great question. So I definitely discovered beavers by accident. I was walking in the woods near my house. I live in rural Connecticut in a wooded area. And literally my dog froze in place and stopped short. And we heard this slam, which was actually a beaver's tail. But I didn't know that it was a beaver slamming the water at that time. I thought maybe a gun had gone off. It was so loud. And when I looked to that area, which previously had been just a kind of swampy area that I had ignored and paid no attention to, I just, my jaw dropped because it was shimmering with silver water. It had become a pond as if overnight. It probably had actually happened in the course of a couple days. I think I hadn't walked there for maybe two or three days, but it had happened really fast. And there was a beaver swimming back and forth, basically telling me to get lost. (laughs) This was now her dam her pond and it was just incredible and I think you know we think of moments of awe as being these big moments but for me moments of awe often happen in the natural world and they're they're very quiet and I just wanted to unpack this animal what had happened I knew it was big and after six years of research into beavers now I can really say just how big it is beavers not only made America, I mean, literally made the first economies of our country, jump-started transatlantic trade, then they would really get the engines of capitalism going in the 19th century with the fur trade. But it would be beavers 
through the eons, millions of years before European settlement that shaped the river systems of this continent that shaped the land. And it is that profound role in the ecological health of the river system that beavers have always played, that the indigenous peoples have, I would argue, always known and still know today, because a lot of environmental restoration movements throughout the country are actually being led by indigenous groups, as well as forest service groups and all kinds of environmental restoration groups. But now they have this incredible role to play because they're one of our greatest conservation comeback stories. So they're just a fabulous story of North America. Um, you know, we almost wiped them out. And then people worked very hard in the 1900s to bring them back. Thank goodness. So to learn more about beavers, you sort of apprenticed yourself to a man named Herb, who was actually a modern-day fur trapper. Can you talk about what you learned from Herb and, and also what it was like to inhabit the world of a man who hunted the animal that you revered? Yeah, that was really one of the unlikely... Um, I mean, the, I met so many incredible people in this book. I had so many fantastic journeys that I write about, but... Uh, I think one of the great surprises for me was to discover that where I lived in rural Connecticut, the people who cared the most about beavers that I met first were actually a group of fur trappers, particularly this one very interesting, very ethical fur trapper named Herb Sabansky, who sadly is no longer living, but taught me a great deal about beavers and the natural world. And it was actually Herb Sabansky who gave me the title of the book, Beaverland. He stood on top of the beaver mound one day and just looked with such incredible sense of love and admiration for this swamp, you know, which I was still looking at as a kind of a swamp. And he looked at with so much admiration and he said, this is Beaverland. And I thought, I wrote it down because I'm a journalist. Like, I don't know what he's talking about, but that's interesting. And, and later I would understand that he really, through tracking the animals over the years, being close to them in this knowledge base that he learned by studying them so closely, understood how key they were to the environment. And he was interested in the history of the fur trade. He had a personal family connection to it. I actually think that if Herb were alive today, he would be one of the people, and there are many fur trappers I know who have actually converted to helping to live trap beavers, to help in environmental restoration projects, who would be one of the first to maybe say, look, a live beaver is actually more valuable to us now than a pelt. You know, they played a role um, as a commodity. That's over. What beavers have to offer us now as living animals, as part of the environment and the ecology is so important. Um, it's pretty hard, I think, to justify using their, their fur anymore. And, and their new role helping us face climate change, you know, they manage water. And most of our problems with climate change have to do with water. Too much water, too little water, right? Drought, wildfire, flooding, dwindling supplies of groundwater, water quality issues. So beavers in a healthy river system slow down the water moving through the river system. They create vast areas of water storage, and they do this for free. And 
in those areas of water storage, all those beaver ponds along the river system, uh, the water is being cleansed. So, you know, each of those beaver ponds has, imagine, invisible sponge underneath it, which is uh, what's called the hyperreic zone, which is where water connects with the soil. Um, not to get into kind of too much complicated river science, but in that area, water's being cleansed, slowed down. So nitrogen, phosphorus are being cleansed out of the water. And it's also being slowed down and aquifers are refilling. And even in Cape Cod, where you may not have a lot of space for beavers, or you may think you don't have enough space, but you probably have more space than you think, you do have problems with dwindling supplies of groundwater. So you really need to restore as much wetland function as you can. And to do that, you need beavers because beavers have been part of a healthy river ecology, which is the wetland system, basically. You, so, one of the amazing things in the book is that you tell us that the rivers that we have today are nothing like what rivers were before Europeans came to North America. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, thank you. And it's such a big idea. And it, you know, it took me a long time to get my head around this. I went out and I write about this in a chapter. I went up into the White Mountains with a geomorphologist who studies rivers, uh, Dr. Berkstead. And I went into the Yale Forest with her and she kept saying, look, a river, a stream, a creek, whatever you want to call it, is basically groundwater made visible. Um, and, and I kept going, what? No, a river is this running body of water. I know what a river is. But by the end of the book, I realized that, no, actually, we might think about, we might better call a river a riverscape. So it's basically water moving through the land. And in back when North America was beaver land, when something like 400 million beavers were working in every watershed. That's a, you know, just kind of imagine that for a second. The river system, which is a, you know, a main trunk like the Hudson or the Connecticut River and then tributaries that go off from it, um, was like a, a circulatory system pulsing water through the land. It wasn't just this channel or ditch that we have carved out for our own purposes, which once we got here, and by we, I mean European colonists that started building, you know, the country, the United States of America, the America that we know today, we needed rivers for transportation, we needed rivers for energy, and we started settling around rivers and building infrastructure around rivers. So we started closing them in so they could no longer move the way they need to. And that's when we lost, we've lost something like 50% of our wetlands. And that's why as we face accelerating problems of climate change, where our, we run out of water during times of drought, or when we have rain events, the river system can't hold all the water and we have flood events. It's because the wetlands, these, these sponges that were always there to absorb the water and manage the water aren't there anymore the river the river just isn't working the way it's supposed to it's not healthy anymore so 
it, it's really a different way of thinking about a river, maybe thinking of a riverscape versus river as a like a single channel of water or a thread of water. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Totally. And I want to tell people who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about beavers, a very strange animal and how they may actually help us save the Earth. My guest is Leela Phillip, a professor of writing and environmental studies at the College of Holy Cross. Her new book is Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. So, Leela, among the amazing people we meet in your book is Dorothy Richards, a woman who adopted beavers <laughs> and lived yeah. with them in her home. And I know because I've seen pictures in your book. I was blown away by her and her husband, Al, saving yeah. a beaver that they named Delilah, bringing it inside one night and placing it in her spare bedroom. Can you tell us about Dorothy and that night with Delilah and her work? Oh, my gosh, with with pleasure. I mean, I met so many amazing people past and present in this book, and it was really fun writing about them. But Dorothy Richards has a special place and for a lot of reasons. So she um, in the in the 40s and 50s buys land in the um, sort of kind of um, lower uh, Adirondacks and starts putting together what would become the first beaver sanctuary in the country. And she also discovers beavers by accident. She, um, the forest uh, service says, look, we want to release two beavers. Can we release them on your land? And she says, yes, knowing nothing about beavers. And then she becomes fascinated by them to the extent that in 1938, she petitions to have a special um, kind of license to bring two beavers into her house because they're wildlife and you cannot have wildlife in your house without a special permit. I don't think today you can even do that anymore, but she got this permission and that was the beginning of her having what would be something like 14 generations of beavers. At one point she had um, a over 40 beavers living with her. 14 of them in her house. And I went to see this house. I describe it in the book. It's quite small. And what's interesting to me about Dorothy Richards is she was dedicated. She observed the beavers every day. She opened her place up for education. She was talking about beavers, trying to convince the American public that it was time for us to think about beavers, not as pelts or pests, because at this time, there were starting to be quite a number of beavers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even into the 80s. Fur trapping was picking up, and people were thinking of them, gosh, if I have beavers flooding my road, just trap them out. There was no awareness of the ecological value of keeping them there, the biodiversity, the water storage. It was just the inconvenience of having them flood the road. Now we understand that it's worth taking the effort to put in a pond leveler or a culvert diversion and work with coexistence strategies, which are very, very doable to work with the beavers so that you can have all the benefits they bring. And she was really trying to educate people way ahead of her time. And people thought she was nuts. They called her the crazy beaver lady. And her observations about the emotional lives of beavers and the reasoning abilities of beavers were also discounted. And I think it's because she was a woman and it was because she was not, you know, she was self-trained. But 
we have a long tradition of self-trained American naturalists that go back to H.D. Thoreau, if you think about it. Um, you know, he was measuring the temperature of all those ponds <laughs> with his thermometer. He was our first poet naturalist, really. Delilah, the the beaver, um, uh-huh. when what what fascinated me was the story with when Dorothy's husband saved Delilah from a trap and Delilah was brought back into the house. She put <laughs> Delilah oh, yeah. into a spare bedroom. And right. and so tell us that story, how she heard knocking about and went into the bedroom. So Delilah almost drowns. Um, they save her. And um, in the night, she hears knocking about in the upstairs bedroom. And Dorothy goes upstairs and Delilah has chewed the legs off a bureau already. And so the bureau has fallen over. And um, she realizes that the beaver is just chewing everything and exploring and tr- doing what beavers do, which is transform their habitat. And so she lies down in the bed thinking that maybe she she knows Delilah because she had fed Delilah at the pond. And she thinks that maybe if she's there, she can help calm Delilah down. And in fact, it, it works. So Delilah calms down and she pretty soon, Delilah is underneath the bed playing around pushing the bed springs up and down with her feet. So Dorothy's going up and down like on a trampoline. <laughs> Um, Delilah goes over and starts playing with a pump, which I think is fascinating, and just watching it twirl around. And then eventually, which is the most touching thing, she goes and curls up next to Dorothy and sleeps next to her and finally um, falls asleep. So the beaver knew her, trusted her, was bonded to her. And what's interesting now is we're at a revolution of understanding about animal behavior, animal psychology. We know octopi dream, right? We um, understand that dogs have much more of an emotional life than we ever understood. You know, really scientists and researchers like Franz de Waal have made big inroads into understandings about species like, you know, capuchin monkeys. And so I think we're at the threshold of new understandings about animals that, um, you know, she wasn't giving credit for. She was writing about this. Um, And one of the things I poke at in the book is this question of beaver intelligence, because we've studied what beavers make and do. I mean, their beaver dams and constructions have fascinated people. But we don't know that much about the animal itself because we haven't bothered to study beavers. And also, they're a little bit hard to study. They're not going to cooperate like a Norwegian rat and like run through a maze or you know <laughs> ring a bell for you <laughs> and and they live in water so they are hard to put into a lab situation but I think also um, it, there's been a little bit of a bias about how to look at them and a researcher who's doing really interesting work now out in Montana is Dr. Jordan Kennedy who I write about in the book when I interviewed her for the book she was at Harvard still a PhD student but I think she's starting to crack the code about beaver intelligence um, and how beavers can do some of the extraordinary engineering feats they can do. I mean, you mentioned it, but the largest animal construction on the planet is a beaver dam. So how do they... And it's like a half mile long, right? Right. And not only that, it has endured. So beavers work um, through the generations, which is interesting. And in fact, I write about going out to Michigan and I'm 
on the hunt of some beaver dams that were documented in 1868 in this fabulous book called The American Beaver by Lewis Henry Morgan, who also fell in love with beavers. I'm not the first. Um, and he was an early industrialist, which is interesting. But um, those beaver sites in Michigan, I found some of them. Um, so that's 150 years after he observed them. So they're at least 200 years old. Really? You know how many times we've rebuilt the police station in Wellfleet and the beavers <laughs> can build something that can last that long? So um, you you compare... Well, first, let me tell people who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. And today we're talking about one of the strangest and most useful creatures on Earth, Castor canadensis, the North American beaver. My guest is Leela Phillip, professor of writing and environmental studies at the College of the Holy Cross. Her new book is Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. So, Leela, you you compare the beaver's intelligence to bees and termites. They, they sort of have a collective intelligence. Well, that's the thinking now. I mean, again, I can't stress enough how much we don't know about beavers because they just haven't been studied as an animal. But I think uh, Dr. Jordan Kennedy started looking at this when she was at Harvard, looking at a kind of stig what's called stigmergic behavior. So how animals like ants and termites can make these phenomenally complex constructions and big ones by just following simple rules in response to environmental cues. So what are the environmental cues that beavers follow? That's the kind of working question. She discovered out in Montana that beavers would go out and build immediately when the flow rate was 250 liters per second, not before, not after, which is pretty interesting. So that means they know what they can and can't manage in terms of taking on um, a current. So previously people thought, oh, they're just building to the sound of running water, which seems to be true, but you know, no beaver has ever tried to dam up the Hudson River, right? Or <laughs> Niagara Falls. So if it was if it was just the sound of running water, they would go for the bigger the sound of running water, the bigger the dam. But they don't they don't do that. And I'm watching a really fascinating situation here where I watched beavers who had to flee a pretty desperate situation where their dam was broken by a human who didn't understand what was going on. And um, they went downstream and they built a dam over an apparently dry area. And what's really interesting is they didn't build a dam over, you know, to stop up running water. They actually enabled subsurface water to come up from underground. And this really blew my mind because how did they know that there was water under the ground? There's now over 5 million gallons of water being impounded in this area. And Dr. Berkstead helped me do some fancy GSI work. And we actually studied how much water is impounded. And on the topo maps for the area, the stream system literally stops at the top, starts lower down. So they pulled up basically a hidden section of the streams system. So this is what the river system does or the stream system. Intermittent streams go down, they come back up. And we really need to change our thinking about even the way rivers work. You know, there's a lot of water that we can't see that's incredibly valuable. And 
the Supreme Court decision last May was pretty devastating because it it narrowed the Clean Water Act to a very narrow ruling of just visible continuous water. So if you have these disconnected, very valuable wetlands, which clearly these two young beavers, and they were very young, um, figured out, okay, there's water under there. If we dam it up, we can make a pond here. Um, you know, they've they've created this incredible reservoir of water. So when we get a drought next summer, there's going to be water there. Hmm. With flood event, there's now a wet sponge ready to hold it. Meanwhile, the biodiversity in that area is just crazy. I mean, uh, the, the local Audubon has tracked cerulean warblers coming through, which are, they come all the way up from South America and they need particular landing spots. So, you know, the, the cascade of benefits once you have beavers is, is really remarkable. I just can't, you know, you wind me up. I just, I get all excited. That's talking. okay. Let's get back to the weirdness of beavers for a moment. <laughs> And tell me, I am never likely to see a beaver's tail up close. And yet, the book tells us it's not only one of the animal's oddest features, it's been coveted by humans throughout history. What can you tell us about the beaver's tail? Oh, yeah. Well, it's so interesting. So, yes, in medieval Europe, um, it could be a stand-in for um, cod. And it was it, because beavers were classified as fish, so it could be eaten. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church said you could have beavers. Um, so it was a really a nice change up from cod, a nice fatty meal, I think. Um, and it was really coveted by uh, native peoples and by trappers during uh, lean, you know, months when they were only eating lean meats because it was a source of fat. But um, the tail itself is really cool because it's a... Uh, on one hand, it's a water sensor. There's so many blood vessels in it that it's believed that it is through the tail that the beaver can indicate changes in water pressure. So the changes in flow rate that would tell the beaver, go out and build, or the pond's going down, I got to fix um, a hole in the dam. The belief is that, that that's actually uh, being sensed through the tail. Um, it's a kind of air conditioning system, so it cools the beaver off in the summer, all those blood vessels. And literally in winter, a beaver's blood chemistry changes. This is kind of really weird about the beaver. So their blood chemistry changes. They go into a kind of torpor. So they don't need as much oxygen. And they pretty much live off fat in the tail that's stored in the tail. And um, it's also a kind of rudder. They use it to swim. It's a kind of prop when they sit. And... <laughs> You know, it just looks like it's been run over by a tractor. So it's like there's an indentation of tractor tire treads in it. So that increases the surface area. It's not actually scaled. It's just um, a pattern of indentations. So all these pretty fabulous adaptations that make it super useful for the beavers. Um, and one little fun factoid about baby beavers, they have... A kind of built-in babysitting system in their blood chemistry so they have so much oxygen in their blood when they're born and they're so cute they're like tiny miniature beaver corpse <laughs> and they cannot dive because they have so much oxygen in their blood so when they get old enough to be able to swim properly the blood chemistry changes and they can dive and they can get out of the lodge 
So it means that for the first, um, I think it's something like six weeks or so, they literally cannot get out of the lodge. So the <laughs> Beavers don't have to worry. So can you imagine if you were an adult beaver, if you have to worry about those little scamps getting out? You know, it would be impossible to do anything. So they know that safe in there. They literally cannot get out because to get into a beaver lodge, you have to dive down and come back up and go into the lodge. And the baby beavers can't dive down. So last question, um, really quick. What, what can you tell us about how you were changed by writing this book. What, what did you learn about human life by immersing yourself for so many years in the study of beavers? Well, that's such a great question because it really, beavers really did change the way I saw the world. And it's not an exaggeration. And I think maybe the first lesson, and in a way it goes back to Herb Sabansky because um, I found beavers in my own backyard and they were so ordinary they're extraordinary. So it really made me realize that the power of nature's resiliency and its full beauty is just right here. So, you know, I live in a very kind of, you know, broken landscape of the, you know, of the East in many ways, right? This is this is the landscape of the East that's coming back after hundreds of years of environmental devastation whether it was the fur trade or over timbering or crowding or development. But even with that, nature's power is right here. And I think we're going to have to leave it right there. And I think that's a perfect place to stop. Today, we've been talking with Professor Leela Phillip, a professor of writing and environmental studies at the College of the Holy Cross. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. Beaverland was just released in paperback from 12, which is an imprint of Grand Central Publishing. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on how beavers can maybe save us from ourselves one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.